0: Last week we spent quite a bit of time looking at the other doctrines and those that were bringing other doctrines or or false teachings into the church there in Ephesus where Timothy is trying to rally the church to bring it back to the truth of the gospel. We've talked about Paul, that he is the author of this letter. He's writing to his, calls him his beloved true son in the faith. So when they've worked together, they've traveled together, they've suffered together, been in prison together, these men are men of God set on the task of building the kingdom of God on this earth. God has been using these men and they're in a very difficult situation here in Ephesus. The church has been drifting. It has tended to move away uh, following some of these false teachers and and these are men who have cropped up from inside. They're not, not the wolves that are out there Barking around the edge of the community. They are right inside of it. They've come up. Some of them are likely elders. And they've, they've shifted. And they've drifted away from the truth of the gospel. That Paul had spent over two years teaching there in Ephesus. I want to begin with verse 3. In chapter 1. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia. Paul speaking. Remain in Ephesus. That you, Timothy... May charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Which cause disputes rather than godly edification. Which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. From a good conscience and from sincere faith. Which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So we've seen here, so far, these are the false teachers. These are the ones, they don't really even know what they're speaking about nor the things that they're they're agreeing with and and trying to hold up and yet they're pulling people away. They have gone astray. And then Paul launches here in verse 8. He says, But we know, you and I, Timothy, we know that the law is good If one uses it lawfully. If one uses it appropriately. Knowing this. That the law is not made for a righteous person. Keep that in mind. We'll talk about that in a minute. The law is not made for a righteous person. But for the lawless and insubordinate. For the ungodly and for sinners. For the unholy and profane. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. For manslayers. For fornicators. For sodomites. For kidnappers. For liars. For liars for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That pretty much encapsulizes everything of disobedience to God. And then he adds, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. He begins to open our eyes, just a moment in that last verse, to something spectacular. He's going to be opening up this morning what happened to him when the law was used lawfully when the law was used appropriately and what the gospel did this morning we will witness the most amazing testimony of the lawful use of the law in rescuing a man through the gospel we've heard about these false teachers and their impotent impotent unsaving gospel it will not save Now, this morning, hear from the former king of the Pharisees as he makes clear the gospel that transformed his life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. I, I, Lord, these passages this morning are so powerful. Lord, I, I pray that through me and in spite of me that your spirit would move throughout the hearts and minds of, of each person here, mine included, and we will, we will stand, we will sit, we will be in awe of who you are and what you've done through Paul. Lord, unlock it for us, Hope open it up to us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray, amen. Now in the handout this morning, there's a lot of blanks and And I was talking with someone this week, and if you're one of those kind of obsessive, compulsive, and if you miss a blank and you forget it, uh, don't worry about it. If you miss a blank, fill in what you can. And if you have any questions afterwards, uh, you can talk with me. The objective isn't to complete the page paper. The objective is that that paper may help you to kind of move along with us as we go through the passages. So no pressure on using it. And if it doesn't make sense, or at the end you have questions, just talk with me afterwards. But this morning... We are seeing what I think is the most amazing transformation of all of Scripture. An extreme transformation. At the beginning of these verses, we see that now Paul is a servant of God. Verse 12, a servant of God. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry or into service. Paul attributes everything in his life to Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in that first verse, what do we see there? He enabled me. He gave me strength. Secondly, he counted me faithful. He judged me faithful. And then he put me into ministry. It is Christ. It is from Christ. It is all Christ. And this all begins back in in Acts chapter 9 that's the beginning of this story and if you would please turn in your scriptures to Acts chapter 9 beginning of verse 3 Acts chapter 9 verse 3 and I'm going to read through quite a bit of this as he, this is Paul, as Paul journeyed, now let me back up so you know why he's journeying. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, the Christian way, the way of Christ, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul that, that takes your breath away. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. And immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. That he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said... Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving, proving that this is Jesus, that this Jesus is the Christ. What a testimony. That is, that is so amazing. We could stop there and you could go home and meditate on what God did in the life of that man. All the intricacies there from what he did in Saul and what he did in Ananias. And, and Ananias goes and prays and he's, he believes God and he says, Brother Saul, the same man who had come to destroy him. It's an amazing account there. But we've got more this morning to look at. If we go back to verse 12 in First Timothy chapter 1. It almost sounds like Paul is bragging to say that God judged or counted me faithful. I would question that and want you to question it if I was saying something like that. But in verse 12 here, Paul is not bragging. What he desires is to show how amazing it is that God would transform his hate-filled life so radically to the point that God would now judge him faithful or trustworthy. Had Paul somehow earned this degree of faithfulness? Not at all. If we go back to an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Paul there is talking about marriage and betrothal. And he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Meaning, not that this isn't authoritative, but he's saying, The Lord Jesus had not spoken specifically about this. And now I will speak what is inspired from God. The word that was inspired from God. It is still authoritative. And then he goes on to say. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Even his faithfulness. Even his trustworthiness. Now that he has been judged trustworthy. Has come from Christ himself. But. That's where Paul is now as he writes. Before before Paul is what? He is an enemy of God. Verse 13, he he backtracks. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, I am in ministry for Christ in spite of the fact that my resume reads as follows. I was a blasphemer. That is one who rails against God. Paul slandered God and in particular, he reviled and despised God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He literally hated the name of Jesus. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. Paul would literally cause people to flee and then he would pursue after them. And if any of you have a house cat that has caught a mouse, you've seen this happen. They will take that mouse and they will toss it out there and play with it and get it to run and then they will chase it and catch it again. That's kind of the idea of what Paul was. That was in his blood. He loved to persecute God's people. It was almost a sport to him. It goes on to say that he was an insolent man. That is a violent aggressor. The King James says he was injurious. What that means is Paul hurt people and he hurt them very badly. And not just physically. One of the commentators says. An insolent man is one who loves to see people humiliated. Suffering brings him pleasure. If you think that Paul was was just kind of going down the wrong track real strongly. But maybe he had a lot of wholesomeness that God would then use. Forget that. He was wicked. He was evil. He loved to see people suffering. He loved. To hurt them. He destroyed families. He tore apart husbands and wives. He ripped children. From their parents. He was a first century Jewish terrorist. Delighting in striking terror. In the heart of every believer. With the aim to crush their faith in Christ. Here's what it says in Acts 9. Verse 1. Then stalled. Still breathing threats and murder. You get the idea? That was his life breath. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus. So that if he found any who were on the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 22, verses 3 through 5. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Taught according to the strictness of our father's law. And was zealous toward God as you all are today. I pursued, persecuted I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering into prison both men and women. As also the high priest bear me witness. And all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains. Even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. To get the picture, it's a very sordid picture of what was going on. Acts 26 verse 8. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the high priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue. And I compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I chased them everywhere. A bad man. But, but, I obtained mercy, says Paul. This is the this is the chasm of contrast. I obtained mercy. It's better translated, I received or I was shown mercy. Paul in no way accomplished or obtained mercy by his effort. Mercy is a gift of God. It's not of works, so that no one should boast. God graciously gave Paul mercy. Mercy means that Paul did not suffer what he deserved. He deserved eternal hell, condemnation forever. Because of his sin and because of his Gargantuan spiritual pride. Here in Philippians 3. Is the misplaced and condemning facade. That Paul lived by. The misplaced and condemning facade. Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh. I am more so. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. It's like it raises in his authority, his validity. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's the facade he lived behind. But this is the unshakable truth. That transformed his life. Listen to this. He goes on to say. But those things. But what things were gain to me. These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. As dung. That I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The first half. That's what he lived by this facade. It was me, me, me. Let me get up to these points. Then we get to Jesus Christ. And what is it? It's Christ, that I may know Him. That I may suffer with Him. That I may experience what He experienced. That I may know Him. I would give everything I have, He says. Now, the word because is in verse 13. And look at that carefully. There's a word in there, because, in verse 13. And it is there to answer a question. That's what because is for. Why? Why? Why did Paul receive mercy? The question is not. The question is not. Why did Paul receive mercy. And not his other Pharisee peers. That's not the question. Paul is raising here. The question is. Why would a man. With such an extreme record. Of antichrist zeal. And hatred. For the bride of Christ. Be given mercy. Of all people. So extreme. Why would God choose him? Paul answers that question interestingly. He says, well, it was because I did it ignorantly in an unbelief. What does that mean? What does it mean that Paul did it ignorantly in unbelief? Does that absolve him as responsibility? No, we know that's not the case. In other words, he was not like many of the Pharisees and the high priests who had witnessed before their very eyes and ears the teachings and the supernatural miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ they had seen it they had watched it with full knowledge on display and they refused to believe Paul on the other hand had this to say in Acts 26 9 indeed I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Paul is not claiming innocence he's not not denying his own guilt as MacArthur said, it was simply a statement indicating that he did not understand the truth of Christ's gospel and was honestly trying to protect his religion. Hendrickson said this, he says, though his past conduct, conduct has been frightful, it had not amounted to the sin against the Holy Spirit, the willful sin against better knowledge. For such a sin, there is no pardon. So for Paul, there was forgiveness just as for the same reason there was forgiveness for the men of Israel who had killed the prince of life. You get that? Who gave testimony at the cross as Christ died? A Roman centurion who had supervised his execution but yet by the Spirit's work in his life, in his mind, in his heart, suddenly he is, it's revealed to him, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. When Paul is confronted by the living Christ on that road to Damascus, when he sees him face to face, his repentance and belief were undeniable. He was transformed completely. Verse 14 goes on to say, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. What a verse, grace, faith, love. Here we have the one who transforms, the one who does the transforming comes. Abundant grace will transform you in Christ. Here it says grace. It says grace was given exceedingly abundantly. And Paul likes to do this. There's a prefix he uses here. It's hooper or hyper. And you know where that goes. Paul uses this often to express something that's super, that's overflowing, that's unbounded. For example, in Romans 5.20, he says this same thing. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Hooper, hyper grace. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows Exceedingly. It's not just growing rapidly, it's growing, hyper, super growth. And Paul uses this often. And why does he use it here? Well, you have a blaspheming, persecuting, violent, attacking enemy of Christ. He is met by the far more powerful, superabundant grace of Christ. Paul was no match for the superabounding grace of Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. Romans 3.23-24 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace to the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then we see, it's, it's a beautiful here, within Christ's grace, within the capsule of Christ's grace, are always faith and love. Two gifts. Colossians 1 verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Ephesians 3, That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Wherever one has been shown grace, there is faith, And there is love. And then Paul gets to the heart of how he was transformed in verse 15. Look there at verse 15. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. Why? Why Christ came into the world. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance as that starts off this is found 5 times in the scriptures and every time it's in the pastoral epistles first and second timothy and titus it means exactly what you think it means it means it, it's introducing a well-known and trusted belief something declared with full confidence throughout all the churches at that time but uniquely where paul also adds and worthy of all acceptance What's he doing here? He is doubling down. He is adding emphasis. He is announcing that it is absolutely heard and it is absolutely agreed by all of God's people. In the two verses where Paul uses this double-barreled declaration, he proclaims the powerful work of Jesus Christ as Savior of sinning mankind. What could be more faithful? What could be more worthy of full acceptance throughout the church but to know that Jesus Christ saves sinners? This is the absolute truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we would have no business even being here if that truth wasn't there. Now, let's see what he says. Why is this trustworthy? Why is it a fully accepted statement? Well, he begins with Christ Jesus. And we talked about the order of that. Paul, when he was introduced with Christ, he saw him for the first time as the anointed Messiah, the Christ And then he realized and knew more of him as Jesus. But his introduction was to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. The one waited on for thousands of years by God's people. Prophesied. Foretold. Anticipated. Throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus, Christ Jesus. So named by God. God named that boy through his angel to Joseph remember the angel appears to Joseph who is the husband of Mary who is the mother of Jesus and he's given the name Jesus And why the angel explains it he says because he will save his people from their sin what an announcement you know he's talking about many of you in the mind of God when he said he will save his people from his sin, their sin he was talking about you and me Chris, Tom, Greg, Barb, Deborah. Those who have put their faith. He will save you. And he was told that. So Christ Jesus and he, there's two words here. Came into the world. Christ Jesus moved into this world. He was not created at this point. I had a long argument with a man this week about this concept. Christ Jesus didn't suddenly come into existence When he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He had existed as scripture says in John 1. Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. He existed from the beginning. He was the agent of creation. He has always existed. But he did move into this world. He came into this world. It is much better said here. Jesus was not created. He acted at this point. In Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery, did not consider it something that had to be grasped tightly to be equal with God. No, he made himself of no reputation. And what did he do? He took the form of a slave, not a king, not a general, not a business success. No, he took the form of a slave. And he came in the likeness of men. And he was found in appearance as a man. Then what did he do? He humbled himself. Humbled himself to death. That's impossible. The wages of sin is death. So how could Jesus die? Because he took on all our filthy sin for those who would trust him. That's the only way he died. He incurred the wrath of God and the punishment of God that I deserved. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Largely believed to be the most painful and humiliating way to die. Excruciating. He humbled himself to that degree. It's better said also in John. Please turn to the Gospel of John. Verse 1. We are trying to see this Jesus Christ who came into the world. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we're talking about Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. Life was in this one. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 9. That was the true light. Which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. We just read he came into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own Did not receive him. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right. To become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. And that word. That logos became flesh. And lived among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. John had seen it with his very eyes. God in the flesh, the God man. That's who came. Hebrews 1, another testimony. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past of the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. He is the message. He is the logos, the expression of God to this world. That is who came. That is who came. But he did not come just to make an appearance. Or to make an observation. Christ Jesus came to this world with a purpose. Two words. To save sinners. Who is a sinner? Who is a sinner? Paul writes that all men fit that description. But why? Why are all men specifically sinners? Because when the law is used lawfully... As Paul explained earlier in this chapter, there it declares that all men are in violation of God's law. All men violate the law of God, and if you've violated the law of God, you are a transgressor, you are a lawbreaker. And every man has been clearly shown to be that by the law of God. Verse 9 says that the law is not made for a righteous man. Romans 3.10 says there is no unrighteous, no not one. Verse 12 in Romans 3 says there is none who does good, no not one. Verse 18 says there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none righteous apart from Christ, no one. yet, yet. There were many who considered themselves righteous enough in the church and city of Ephesus that Paul was writing to. There were many on the streets of Jerusalem that confronted Jesus in their self-righteousness. And there are many today who consider themselves righteous. Now, not perfect, mind you. I've never talked with anyone who said, well, I'm righteous because I'm perfect. Of course, no one is perfect is often the comment. But can we be so arrogant, so self-righteous that we defensively reply, but I think I am good enough. God doesn't expect perfection. God forgives. This only reveals ignorance of and defiance toward the holy God that they think they are fooling. Last night as we walked away from one of the bars, there was a man that boldly was yelling in response to one of our guys God doesn't hate anyone. The Bible doesn't hate anything. God loves everyone. God loves every religion. That is not love to be saying those things about love. Because you are paving the way to hell for anyone who would accept that. What was actually being shared was love. To turn and follow Christ. If God loves everyone, the Bible loves everyone, and there is no condemnation, why then would Jesus have anyone to save? Matthew nine thirteen, Jesus says, But go and learn what this means. I did not desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <coughs> Here is how all mankind stacks up before the high bar of God's holy requirements. Here is how we look before God's holy requirements Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. You could have plastered that in yesterday's headlines and seen that all over the news. You could have plastered that over much of my life and seen many of those sad things. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. James 1. Then when desire is conceived. It gives birth to sin. And sin when it is full grown. Brings forth death. All men have sinned. We have fallen so far short. Far short. And the punishment. Is eternal death. <clears throat> So wicked is mankind. And I, you might think, this is a downer. It is a downer. And so just and unchangeable is God's judgment against sin that something unimaginable in the minds of men was required. The prophets of ancient time foretold the extreme action that God would someday take. And this is where it turns around. Isaiah 53, verse Three, he, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Do you see the impossibility of this? If you were an ancient Jew looking for the Messiah's triumphant return and you read this, you wouldn't put these together. But this is Isaiah speaking of the Messiah who was to come. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Yet it pleased the Lord, oh, excuse me but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It goes on, and they made his grave with the wicked. This is the Messiah. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When you, Lord, make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Then the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. For he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul into death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I know that was long. But if you put that juxtaposed against the idea of who the Messiah would be and then see him come as Christ. It's an amazing tale. It's an amazing story. And it's the fullness of what Jesus was and what he would do. Matthew 20 verse 28 Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Who would have thought God would do that? Paul, when he was going everywhere he could to imprison and beat and and pressure the people of Christ, he never had in the slightest of his mind that that Christ was the fulfillment of this. That that Christ was the one who would save him. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Philippians 2.8, again, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Again, Hendrickson says it was to save sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world. Now listen to these words. He did not come to help them save themselves, nor to induce them to save themselves, nor even to enable them to save themselves. He came to save them. but I ask you is this really necessary do you really need to be saved and most of you would say of course and if I, if I would ask that on the campus or on the street many people would say well yes saved from what what do, you want, what do you need to be saved from I've had many people say well I'm, I was saved at this time or I'm saved and then you ask well what are you saved from and what are you saved to a lot of times people have no idea. I want to bring that out this morning. And DJ, would you pull that up quickly? And I do this because I want us to be trained and ready to speak about salvation. When you're talking with someone and you want them to be saved, what do you want? Saved from what to what? Negatively, it's to rescue men from sin's guilt, Slavery and punishment. That's what you're saved out of. And that punishment includes alienation from God, the wrath of God, and everlasting death. I don't have the scriptures up there, but I will try to send those out Monday. Now, positively, what are you saved out of? But what are you saved to? You're saved to righteousness. You are saved to freedom. You are saved to blessedness, which is fellowship with God, the love of God spread abroad in our hearts, and everlasting life, eternal life. You see those? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that rich and full? Take that home and, and meditate on that. When you, go, when you go to bed tonight, or in your devotions tomorrow, this is what I'm saved from. Look at what I'm Free from, look at what I've been given, where I'm going. That's what Paul talks about when he says, I've come to save sinners. Now, we're coming to a phrase that is, is an interesting one. He says, of who I am chief. Paul says, I am chief of sinners. Could this be true? Really? Do you think it was true? Was Paul really the chief of sinners? Was Paul actually the chief, the, the protos, which means the first The first in the lineup of sinners. In other words if you had a list of sinners. According to the order of their worstness. Would Paul really be number one at the top? I read at least seven different interpretations of what Paul really meant when he said this. That I'm chief of sinners. It was everything from hyperbola. To being a part of a group of the worst sinners. To being the most important important sinner to be saved. and, And all these different things. But. I believe Paul really meant the plain reading of this statement. He did see himself as the foremost sinner, the worst of sinners. Before he repented and turned to Christ, and I hope I didn't waste your time telling you how bad Paul was because we're going to hit it again. Paul literally hated everything he knew about the name of Jesus Christ. His life purpose was to obliterate that name from existence. And in order to do that, he would do whatever necessary to the followers of Christ. Men and women. He would silence. He would eliminate. This involved persecution, imprisonment, beating, and execution. Of innocents who loved Jesus. Paul blasphemed The very name of God's own son. He coerced and hurt people to force them to also blaspheme Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ, Jesus' church, was in its infancy. Paul attempted to sadistically abort it as soon as possible. To kill the bride of Christ that Christ had died for. Although he was in one way ignorant and unbelief. His sin was so specific, so violent and so evil toward the name of Jesus Christ. And aimed at the dear bride of Jesus. That he was unlike any enemy of God that had ever existed. In a much different way of looking at this. At Paul's confession here. It is suggested by some that. The more Paul grew in nearness to Christ. and understanding of the holiness and righteousness of Christ. The more heinous his own sin appeared. In the light of Christ the darkness of his life. This letter to Timothy comes at a later point in Paul's life when he, he was likely very near in his spiritual walk with Christ and his sin did look heinous and ugly. Knowing the true depth of his own sin, Paul could honestly have concluded that he was the foremost of sinners. And I would say that, that is true as well. But Paul's goal here, and we're coming to the end here, Paul's goal is not to establish how great a sinner he was. He writes to show us a greater purpose Using the extremes of God's grace against his own unparalleled wickedness. Verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's conversion is a pattern of grace. It's an example. It's, it's a sketch is how that word Uh, actually translates. There are more than one reason for Paul receiving mercy from Christ. It was for God's glory. It was for Paul's benefit. Uh, Paul went on to preach the gospel. He would write many of the letters of the New Testament. Other followers of Christ could fill several of those roles and some did. But no life exemplified the amazing grace of Jesus Christ to save sinners as dramatically as Paul's. His transformation by grace was now the pattern, the design sketch. Paul's conversion showed the world from that day on that no person in their sin is beyond the life transforming power of the grace of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul can be saved. You can be saved. It does not matter. We had an old sailor that lived in the trailer park where uh, we lived for many years. And we would go visit him and he was kind to us. He would have things sent to us sometimes and and we'd clean up at his place and and visit and he loved the kids. But I remember talking with him and trying to share the gospel with him one time and, and, and I shared it and he just said, God would never forgive me for the kind of life I've led. And I begged him that God would do such a thing if he would repent and trust in him. But he would not have it at the time we were in John Wayne Airport in California and there was a guy in his uh, military uh, fatigues and, and went up to talk to him and offered him a tract and he kind of, you know, r- really was pretty uh, unkind of in his response and I was walking down the hallway away from him and I feel a tap on my shoulder and turn around and here's this big guy standing there. He said, no, I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me about this. So we talked about the gospel then he told me, God could never forgive me for the lives I took and what I did over there. I said, God can. Christ will. There's nobody outside of his grace if you will repent and trust in him. And that guy, I don't know what eventually happened, but we did talk on the phone after we got back several times, and I know he was searching. But there is no one outside of that grace of God. After this amazing testimony, from enemy to ministry, how does Paul respond? Our last verse this morning. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is what they call a doxology. That is a swelling of praise. That was all Paul could do after he'd recounted what had happened to him. He's saying, now to the king, the ruler, the sovereign. Fall back in awe. Before his conversion, Paul was determined to destroy the church while God had decreed to establish his church. Listen to this. Paul was determined to destroy the church while God had decreed to establish his church. So what does God do? He goes to the one who is determined to destroy the church changes his life fully and establishes his church with that same man only God this is the most amazing thing from the arch enemy the number one sinner he takes him and converts him and brings him and says Paul now you're going to lead the charge the charge against which you were adamantly trying to kill everyone you're the man That's a, the, the drama of this the, it's so extreme And then he goes on to say eternal. This king eternal. It means of the ages. The Jewish saw reality as two ages. This present age and the age to come. And Paul said he's over it all. This age and the one to come. And he is immortal. Sometimes that's translated incorruptible. It means that he will never decay. He will never weaken. There is no change in this king Jesus. And he is invisible. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 6.16 speaks of God and says, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in an inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And then, the only God. And some of you say, the only wise God. It it is true He is the only wise God. In Romans 16.27 it says that. But, But the more trustworthy manuscripts seem to say, Here, He is the only God. God alone. Romans 16, 27, but it also says in Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. To this one and only God, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Close with this story from William Barclay. The Greek writer Plutarch tells us that when a Spartan won a victory in the games his reward was that he might stand beside his king in battle. A Spartan wrestler at the Olympic games was offered a very considerable bribe to abandon the struggle but he refused. Finally after a terrific effort he won his victory. Someone said to him well Spartan what have you got out of this costly victory you have won? He answered I have won the privilege of standing in front of my king in battle. Are you ready to do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father Lord God we have no business or right to have access to the stories that we've just read or to your truth or your inspired word that is living and powerful. Lord, I pray that you would use these scriptures to change our lives. Perhaps as dramatically as Saul. That, Father, those in here who have resisted you or have played the game would give it up and turn to you and trust you and walk with you until you take them home. Lord, I pray that I will do that. Father, may you be glorified by this body, by these men and women young and old. Father, each of us that we would be those who battle to stand before our King. When we are tired, when we are disillusioned, Lord, pick us up and put us back on our feet and give us the strength. You are the one who enables. You are the one who puts us in ministry. Use us and lead us for your name's sake. In your name we pray. Amen.